portion that I will preach on today, but for context, I'm reading from Matthew 13, beginning in verse 44 through 51. Matthew 13, beginning in verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good in containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age... The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus asked his disciples, Have you understood all these things? They said unto him, Yes. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful day and for the beautiful week we've had and for Christmas and all that means. And we pray that Christmas would be in our hearts all year and that the spirit of Christmas, which is your Holy Spirit, would be manifested and magnified through us all the year that others see Jesus in us. I thank you for all the people who have contributed to this morning. Uh, I know, Father, from personal experience that there are many things behind the scenes that have to be done to bring us to this point in the service. And I thank you for them and I bless them. And I certainly bless Parker Johnson and his family and pray your very richest blessings on them. May they truly have a vacation. May they truly find rest and peace and joy and celebrate their time away from the pulpit and away from the church. These things are necessary. Father, your word has been read aloud. Your word said of itself that when your word is proclaimed aloud, that it will go forth in power and not return void, but accomplish all that you set forth to do with it and prosper in the thing that you send it forth to do. And so we pray, do that now. Let no words fall to the ground unless they are the words of a man. But Father, may your word go forth and may your word abide in our hearts and may we hide your word in our heart that we sin not against you. Father, lastly, I pray because I am a man and men are prone to failure, therefore, this is my prayer. Father, either speak through me or speak in spite of me. But in the name of Jesus Christ, to the glory of God the Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, speak now we ask and we thank you in his name. Amen. Well, first of all, on a personal note, I do want to thank those of you who prayed for me over the past several weeks. I was able to be here last Sunday, but the prior two Sundays I was not, and uh, I've really had a bout with uh, something. I I don't know what it was. I hope you don't ever get it. But nevertheless, I I thank you for your prayers. I also want to thank uh, Shine for his, uh, his, uh, everything he's done today especially, and uh, certainly for his prayers as well. Uh, I will say this too. I know very little about ball, about athletics. But I have uh, learned this from Donna, who knows everything about ball and athletics. 
that when they send in the third string quarterback, the game is already won. <laughs> you had your chance. You see the empty pews. You had your chance. So now, this is where you are and this is where I am. May the Lord bless. I will say one other thing. Because usually you're seeing a man standing up here in a clerical robe. Uh, <laughs> the first time Parker asked me to fill in for him, he was sick and it was a sudden thing and a very little preparation. But he said, uh, at the end of the conversation on the phone, he said, do you have a robe? I said, yes, and I have fuzzy slippers too, but I don't wear them in public. <laughs> and then he said, do you want to borrow my robe? And I said, Parker, think about that for a minute. Your robe on me would look like a giant black droopy bow tie. So I apologize if you're expecting clerical garb. This is the best I, I can do. We read the scriptures, and I want to go back, and I'm going to focus on, on two particular parables, but I want everything to be in context, the scriptures being the best reference for the scriptures. Jesus has been preaching to multitudes using parables, focusing on the kingdom of God under attack. The kingdom of God under attack. That's what he spoke to the, to the uh, multitudes in parables. Now, parables are earthly illustrations which reveal heavenly truths. And so he's, he's speaking in these parables which weren't necessarily understood at that time by those hearing. They, they, they would have said, if you asked, uh, that, that's really good. If you said, what does it mean? Well, I'm not quite sure. Uh, if they were honest. But the multitudes had thronged him, so Jesus being pressured by the crowds, gets in a boat and it's pushed away from the shore and he's, he's in the boat just offshore. The, the crowds are on the shore and Jesus is preaching and so that day he preached one parable that we know of. He preached the parable of the sower and the seed. And later that afternoon, after the crowds have been dismissed, the disciples come to him privately and say, Lord, what did that mean? What, what did that parable mean? And Jesus explains it to them. I'll leave that to you to go back and read later. Prophets declared Messiah would teach in parables as referenced in Matthew 13, verse 34. All these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable spake he not unto them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. These are foundational truths. The second day, Jesus repeats the process. Goes in the boat, is offshore, the crowds are gathered. He preaches again. This time, he preaches three different parables. Not the same parable, three new parables. Those would be the parable of the weeds, King James says the tares and the wheat. The weeds and the wheat, the tares and the wheat, the darnel and the wheat, whichever translation you have. Uh, the second one was the mustard seed parable. And the third was the leaven in the meal. The leaven in the meal or the yeast in the meal. Later at a private home, his disciples asked Jesus to explain the parable of the tares and wheat. And he does so again, beginning in verse 36. And then he concludes in verse 34 
with these words, who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Now that's an important thing. I would say that to you this morning. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Let me tell you what John Calvin's commentary said about that statement. Quote, Scripture testifies in other passages that it is the Lord who pierces or opens the ears and that no man obtains or accomplishes this by his own industry or by his own efforts. Spiritual ears to hear are are just that. He that hath ears to hear. Jesus is saying if you have spiritual anointed, Holy Spirit anointed ears, then hear what I'm saying. And that's what I would say to all of us this morning. And what follows next is fascinating considering his audience. Remember the multitudes are not here now. The multitudes are sent away. Uh, His audience consists now of the 12 disciples and... You might say the second wave or the second level of followers who also went with Jesus many places. They're not mentioned by name almost ever. A few references at the crucifixion, but we don't know their names, but we know there were others beside the 12 who when Jesus traveled were with Jesus and helped support his ministry. But Jesus now gives a private class to his disciples using the parables, still illustrating the kingdom of heaven, but now he shifts the topic from the kingdom of heaven under attack to people of the kingdom. People of the kingdom. The first four parables were taught to the multitudes. The next three that Jesus teaches will be to that intimate group. And we will look closely, or actually closer at the first two of the three, and then we're just going to focus on the second one. But look with me as I read again, Matthew 13, beginning at verse 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Again, a new parable, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now I suspect many of you have heard sermons on the pearl of great price in some form or another. And I'm going to reference, I'm going to, I'm going to suspect what you heard said in some of those sermons, obviously not being there when you heard it. Today's sermon, however, I'm going to put you on notice, will be different from any other sermon you've ever heard on this passage of Scripture. First, concerning both the treasure and the pearl, I want you to notice carefully that the buyer sells all that he has to make the purchase. Consider that statement now. He sold all that he had. All. Everything. I'm going to elaborate on that. In prior sermons you may have heard, the minister might have said something along these lines. A man finds that item which he has sought for all his life and recognizing its great worth, approaches the seller to establish the price. What will I have to give you to purchase this item? He asks. The seller says, what do you offer me? Well, here is all the money that I have in the world. The seller says, what else? He says, well, I I have my home. He said, that would be required. What else do you have? He said, well, uh, uh, I've got a car. I've got an old truck. I've got a boat, a few properties. 
the seller says, and those would be included in the purchase price, what else do you have? And he said, well, we're down to my hobby items, my guns, my fishing equipment, uh, uh, my clothes, I guess. And the seller says, those two, and what else? And, and you, you can almost hear the man in frustration saying, that, that's everything I have. I, I've offered you everything except me. And, and the seller leaning over in his face and pointing his finger to his chest says, and that is the price. It will require all that you have and it will require you. Do you still want to make the purchase? At this point, you may have heard the preacher announce the following conclusion to what he had just elaborated. He may have said something like this. Jesus is the treasure in the field. Jesus is the pearl of great price. To obtain Jesus, it will take all that we have plus all that we are. Now that sounds reasonable. That sounds sound. After all, having Jesus Christ as Lord means that we have the forgiveness of our sin. It means we now have restored fellowship with God the Father. It means we now have the abundant life that Christ promised here. And it means that we have eternal life hereafter. That's everything. And certainly Jesus plus eternal life is worth our lives and all we own. So it sounds absolutely right. Listen to me carefully. It is absolutely wrong. May the Lord give spiritual ears to hear. First of all, before I go there, let me go here and ask you this question. And this question is for you to ask yourself, not for you to answer me. Which doctrine does the Bible teach? Grace doctrine or works doctrine? It's a very important question. It's very important. It will affect every time you open the Scriptures to read. It will affect your viewpoint. Does the Bible teach grace doctrine or works doctrine? Works doctrine explains salvation this way. I examined myself and I recognized my need for salvation and my inability to save myself, so I called on God to save me through Jesus Christ. The common denominator in all of that is me. I determined, I sought, I obtained, I saved me by my works, which conflicts head-on with Ephesians 2.4, which says this, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, Sean referred to that in his prayer, made us alive with Christ by grace you have been saved. I can say with great confidence this morning that dead people cannot initiate anything. And if you doubt me, when you leave the church today, drive by the cemetery, get out of your vehicle, walk over to the edge and say... Arise! Save yourself! Make yourself alive again! Nothing will happen. And the reason being, dead people can do nothing. Dead people can do nothing. Well, wait a minute. The Scripture just said that in our, our condition, apart from Jesus Christ, we were dead in trespasses and sins. 
If you believe otherwise, test it out. No one will move. They're dead. Just as apart from Christ, we're dead. In our lost condition, there is zero chance of our doing anything to save ourselves because we're dead in trespasses and sins. King David declared in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother did conceive me. He's not, he's not putting a, a, a black mark on his mother's name. He's saying we all have original sin. We're born with it. We're born with original sin. Separated forever from holy God unless, and here's where the grace doctrine steps in beautifully, unless Almighty God enables us, King James says quickens us, with spiritual ears to hear His call on our life, equipping us with spiritual eyes to see ourselves as unregenerate sinners with no hope apart from Christ, God providing us with the gift of repentance, making us alive in Christ, God called, God equipped, God convicted, God empowered, God saved, all by grace alone. That'd be a good place somebody say amen. I'm not Baptist. We profess Reformed theology, which is very much absolutely grace-based. And it's confirmed by many scriptures throughout the Bible, including Ephesians 2.8, which some of you could say by heart. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of work so that no one may boast, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All right. With all the information that I just gave you, after telling you that, that the interpretation of Jesus being the pearl of great price is wrong, the question is obvious, Right? Who then is the pearl of great price? Are you ready? Are you ready to know who is the pearl of great price? You are. Jesus is the seeker. Jesus is the merchant. Jesus is the buyer. Only Jesus could pay the price with His life. It's Jesus that sought you. It's Jesus that called you. It's Jesus that saves you. And it's Jesus who paid with His own blood to redeem you to God the Father. You say, that, that conflicts with everything I've ever heard about that sermon. Perhaps so. But if you will look at it through the eyes of biblical doctrine, you will find that is exactly what Jesus just said. He's telling these disciples, and they don't understand. At the end of it, when He says, do you understand these things? And they say, yay, Lord. You know, you almost want to get over here and giggle. It's like, no, you don't. But you will. But you will. Let's get back with you after the resurrection and see what you say then. Then you will say, I see. I see with spiritual eyes. I hear with spiritual ears. Now we get it. He really is God. He really is God. And He bought us and redeemed us unto Himself. At that point, works doctrine just crashed into theology, grace theology. 
You were not seeking the pearl. God was seeking you. Can I just say this in addition? I have, listen, I I have no condemnation for any Christian who through, through some other doctrine came to Christ. That's between them and God. I have dear friends who who have told me from the bottom of their heart, they say, I was seeking God and I found Him. And, and inside my mind it's going, mm, that doesn't compute, but, but listen to me carefully. C.S. Lewis, and I'm paraphrasing, said something like this. If someone had said, when I was in my lost condition, that I was seeking God, I would have told them, that's like a mouse seeking a cat. You did not seek God before God called you. You didn't want anything to do with God. You knew you were were wrong, but you didn't want His righteousness. You wanted your way, my will, my way, my plans, my desires, my thoughts. And here God intervenes and God intercepts and God interrupts. And God speaks to our heart and He's calling our name at night and in the morning when we wake up and when we're driving to work and when we're, when we're coming home from work and when we're back at home and when we're sitting in the chair, God is calling our name, calling our name, calling us to repentance and showing us the sinful condition of our heart that we need Christ. Bless His holy name that He does that. Praise the Lord that He does that. Because apart from His drawing, We not only cannot come, we would not desire to come. Jesus said of himself in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Only Jesus could give his life to obtain our souls, laying down his life to buy you for himself, and now you belong to him. In fact, 1 Corinthians 6 says this, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Because of the price Jesus paid for you, you are the pearl of great price. You are priceless to God because the price paid establishes the worth. If you paid a million dollars for an old jalopy, someone will say, what's that jalopy worth? You say, a million dollars. I established the value by what I paid. Jesus said, I paid for your soul with my life. How valuable is that? And we say it's priceless. Then you are priceless. I deemed you worthy of my laying down my life willingly to die for you. And you know what's overwhelming about all this? And it's been said a lot of times, and I believe it's true, that if there had only been one person on the earth who was lost and undone and apart from God in sin, Jesus Christ would have died for that person. That's overwhelming to me. Now I'll say one other thing about that. Years ago I heard an evangelist on TV. It was one of those deals when you're reading the paper and kind of looking and reading the paper and listening a little bit and so on. And he said something that made me sit down my paper and stare at the television with my mouth open. And here's what he said. He said, I don't love anyone enough to let a crowd of my enemies come in my house and take my child and take them out in the yard and nail them to boards and take their life. I don't love anyone that much. And he paused and then he said, but God did. And I sat there stunned at at the magnitude of the truth I just heard. God did. God did. 
You know, you know the first objection you have to being the pearl of great price? Oh, no, it's not me. I mean, I'm not worthy. I know, I know me. I, I, uh, that's not, no, no. He's the one that determines that. He's the one that determines that. Jesus paid it all. All to him I give. The question begs to be asked. If I am saved by grace then and sustained by grace and sanctified by grace and promised eternal life by grace, then exactly what part do I play? Now that's a good question. That's a very good question. I'm only going to give you a portion of an answer because the answer is, is long and elaborate. But I do want you to turn now in your Bibles. We're not coming back to Matthew. Turn to Luke chapter 9. Turn to Luke chapter 9. And I'm going to begin describing as you turn. There were three different men who approached Jesus one day. Two were volunteering to become disciples. One, Jesus called to be a disciple. Listen to Jesus' conversation with each one beginning in verse 57 of Luke 9. As they were going along the road, someone, a person, a stranger, said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, any good recruiting officer would tell Jesus, take advantage of that situation, you have a volunteer. But Jesus responds in a strange way. Jesus said to him in verse 58, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In effect, the first requirement for any of us who God has called to himself is to count the cost. Consider what discipleship would require. No one can audit Christianity and no one can be a part-time Christian. Either you are or you aren't. You're either saved or you're lost. There is no in-between. Understand the cost, therefore, of discipleship. Now, verse 59 describes another person. This time, it's Jesus doing the calling. To another, he said, follow me. But he, the man he spoke to, said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now in this case, Jesus does the calling. And if, and if you don't know the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say, if you don't know uh, what the man is really saying, let me help you because it sounds very callous for Jesus to say that. For example, if the man was saying, My daddy just died. And I will follow you, but let me go bury, bury my father. That's not what he's saying. Here's what he's saying, in effect. His father's probably not dead. He's not even sick. He was saying, my father is advancing in age and may not have more than 10 or 15 years left. Let me assist him in his old age. And when he is gone, I will obey your call, Lord. Whereas the first man had not counted the cost, the second had counted the cost, and he determined he was not willing to pay the price until his plans were complete. His plans. If you change the word father there and insert career or parenting or financial success or educational goals, you pick the words. But it hits a lot closer to home than we realize. I will serve you, but let me do my plans, then I'll do your plans. Jesus says, that's not the way it works. The third, verse 61. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The third candidate professes willingness to follow Jesus 
but. And that's a, that's a huge but. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. The man exemplifies the one who is torn between the Christ life and his past. Double-mindedness is described in the book of James as causing unanswered prayers and an ineffective walk with God. We are all, to be, we are all called to be all in for Jesus Christ. All in for Jesus Christ. Jesus redeems us with His own blood. We are His precious treasure. We are His glorious pearl. We are eternal trophies of His grace. We are saved by grace and not by works. We are now called to a life of daily self-sacrifice. Listen to what Luke 9.23 says. You may be looking at it. And Jesus said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Can I tell you this absolutely certain? That in 2020, the year 2020, which is next week, or actually this week, isn't it? Your faith will be challenged. Your faith, your Christianity will be challenged. Head on. To follow Christ daily will absolutely cost you something. The cost may be measured in status or dollars or position or social standing or influence or popularity. But understand, there will be a cost to follow Jesus in 2020. Count the cost. Count the cost now. Those three men coming to Jesus likely had good intentions, but He called them to put their faith into action. To follow Christ means being able to say with a pure heart, Lord, not my will, but thine be done. Anything else is false Christianity. With a perpetual attitude of gratitude to God, we find His strength to persevere in our life. And as we live it out, we live it out before a lost and dying world who more than anything on earth need Jesus Christ. Now I close with a, with a true story that happened a very long time ago. But I think it, I think it highlights, don't, don't leave me yet, stay with me. I think it highlights the importance of dying to self and living to Christ. It happened in the year 1732. Two young German Moravian missionaries, their names were Johann Leonard Dober and David Nietzschemann, heard about an island in the Danish West Indies. And on that island, which was owned by an atheist British landowner, he had a plantation where he, he raised various crops, tropical crops. And he also on that island had 3,000 slaves. 3,000 slaves. These men, burdened for the souls of those slaves, contacted the landowner and said, we would like to come and tell these men about Jesus Christ. The landowner said, no, I'm through with that foolishness. I don't want any of that religion here. So they contacted him again, and this time they said, would you be willing to take us to your island to become slaves as well if we can preach Jesus to your people? And after a while, the man said, I will do that. Understand this. If you come to this island, you will die here. You will never, ever leave. And they said, we are willing to do this. So... On a windy day on the seashore, the families of those two men were gathered to see them off for the very last time on earth. The larger sailing ship was sitting offshore and they sent a longboat to pick the two men up. 
And there were hugs and tears and kisses and fond goodbyes. And both of them got in the ship, or got in the longboat, and began to be paddled out toward the ship. And as the family sat there seeing them for the last time, the two men both stood up arm in arm and they hollered something back. Well, they couldn't hear them over the waves and someone told the rest, said, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet. What are they saying? This is important. Recognizing they would never hear their voices again on earth. What is it that you want to tell us that is so important? And here's what those two men said. May the Lamb of God receive the glory worthy of His suffering. May the Lamb of God receive the glory worthy of His suffering. We are bought with a price. Glorify God in your bodies. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we hear stories of missionaries. We hear stories of those who lay down their lives and we feel ashamed. And we look at our own lives and we have not resisted sin to the shedding of blood. We have not given everything. We have held this back or that back, this, this pet sin or that, that secret uh, item or relationship that we, we want to hold on to. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning, speak to our hearts and give us those spiritual ears to hear. And give us those hearts to receive by your Holy Spirit the truth that we owe you everything. And that you gave us everything and you have called us to give you by your strength working through our weakness to your glory everything. Would you please do that? Would you equip each of this church because the church are the, are the people. Would you equip this church in 2020 to shine like lights for Jesus Christ. To be willing to say, whatever it costs me, I will do your will, O Lord. The song says, send a great revival, Lord, and let it begin in me. That's what our prayer is this morning. Revive us, renew us, refresh us. Thank you for your great love. In Jesus' name, amen.